And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you so much, choir and orchestra, ensemble and organ and piano. God is deserving of our praise. Here at Village Church, we've been talking about Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth all year. And we are in a mini-series in the middle of that series about love. And last week we began by talking about the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. And this chapter, the most famous chapter about love, the famous words, the most famous words ever written. And we talked about love's preeminence, how love is the main point of life. Everything Everything without love is nothing. And nothing plus love is everything. If you win at love, you'll win at life. If you fail at love, life will be a challenge. Paul said, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And we talked about how love supersedes and overarches all the gifts of God, all the spiritual gifts, and creates, so to speak, an atmosphere, an environment where all God's gifts can work in the church. And the single purpose of my life becomes becoming a loving person, rooted in the grace of God and the friendship with Jesus Christ, my Savior, Lord, and advocate in heaven now, And the singular purpose of our church is to be a church of love. That was last week. Next week, Pastor Dan is going to focus on the last five or six verses of chapter number 13, talking about how love is eternal. And this week, we will talk about the center section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, love is defined. And Paul uses 15 verbs to describe that. Now, all of them deserve an in-depth conversation, but we'll have time today to only dive into a couple of them. So if you're thinking we're going to talk about all 15, uh, you can be relieved. (laughs) Many people think of these words as just beautiful poetry that are spoken at weddings, And they think these words are like some kind of soft and fluffy, you know, something that you'd read on a Hallmark card or something like that. And they think that when these words were spoken to the church in Corinth, that they got a really warm, fuzzy kind of feeling, you know, like, oh, this is so nice. But to the contrary, to the contrary, Paul's words in this beautiful chapter that we're going to look like today Although they start with two positives, which we'll look at, love is patient, love is kind, they also end with, I mean, they they have in the center three or eight negatives. Love does not boast, it's not proud, it, it does not dishonor others, and on he goes. And in each one of those verbs that Paul uses about love, he's actually rebuking the church in Corinth because that's exactly what they weren't, all eight of those. These negatives were like, Well, you could say a confrontational slap in the face for Corinth. And, well, it may be good for us to take a listen today as well. Love doesn't boast, he says, contrary to your striving in Corinth and in Walla Walla. 
Love is the opposite of pridefulness, which so consumes your energies and focus. And on and on he goes. All these negatives. So what prompted Paul to write these words to Corinth is that they needed some instruction. They needed a lot of it. And we need a bit of instruction as well. They were indulging in attitudes and behaviors that were hurtful. There was social climbing going on. There was a lust for status and and money. There was strident self-seeking going on in the church in Corinth. And it was wrecking their community. And he calls them worldly. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as a people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. So for Paul, the whole idea of these 15 verbs come from not thoughts that Paul dreamt up, but rather they come from Jesus' life and teaching. For example, the first one, patience. Patience was a preeminent virtue and characteristic of Jesus. For example, from the age of 12, Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Think of it, 12-year-old, and he has the weight of unprecedented proportions on his shoulders from this very young age. He lived with a sense of mission, as is evident from this, these words from his mouth. The situation is dire. He knows it. And yet, Jesus worked for the next 18 years from then as a carpenter in obscurity. He turned 18, still pounding nails in Nazareth. 20, still swinging a hammer. 25, 29. Now, I know you're probably saying, well, that's all prophetic. Well, it was, but imagine his patience during that time. And then, when he finally starts ministry with a big launch by his cousin, John the Baptist, the first thing he does is find a place off the grid, (laughs) some secluded spot in the desert for 40 days of unhurried prayer with his father. Then one day, when Jesus is walking with his disciples, he's tired and says, I'll take a break here by this well, Jacob's well, And he tells his disciples to go ahead into the city and he begins a conversation with a Samaritan woman who was a real peace. No rabbi would have taken time to talk with this woman. She had had five wives. She was shacking up with another guy. And when the disciples come back, he's engaged, so engaged with this woman. It's like he's talking with the who's who's of Palestine. And they wonder... Another time, they're all in the boat and a storm whips up the waves to the point where the disciples are freaking out and they wonder about Jesus and they look at him and he's in the back of the boat. They're worried about drowning and he's asleep in the back of the boat. Whoever heard of a napping Messiah? Next time your spouse gives you a hard time for napping, just tell her, I'm trying to be more like Jesus. At one point, his teaching was so demanding and so challenging 
that his followers started dropping out. The crowd begins to thin. And Jesus' brothers are, are concerned. And they say to him, you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to do something to get the momentum back. You remember the story, the Gospel of John. And Jesus says, no, no, not now. Not yet. My time is not yet. It'll come. Here's a man with a mission. A mission like no other has had. And yet, he was so patient. Sometimes, at least in my mind, we hear the word patience. And we think This is teeth-gritting endurance. Like, oh God, give me the patience to put up with this bozo. (laughs) Jesus was not a teeth-gritter. I know that's not a word, but he wasn't a teeth-gritter. Even though he was so well-known by his disciples, he was never uptight, ill-tempered or at the end of his rope so that you could never, you would never have heard them say, watch out today. Looks like Jesus got up on the wrong side of the bed. Never was that said. He was the most patient person they'd ever seen. Not because he had such pleasant circumstances. No, not by any means. But because he was love incarnate. And love is patient problem is we're not patience is sort of like our Achilles heel there was a survey done of thousands of Christians in in Georgia and they were asked which fruit of the spirit would you most like to grow in the fruits of the spirit you know Paul talks about them in Galatians love joy peace patience kindness goodness on it goes you know those fruits and they asked them which fruit of the spirit would you like most like to grow in There's nine fruits. More than 50% of the people said patience. So in other words, the other eight, less than half the people voted for those. Patience was, was number one. Some of us, myself included, are a little sketchy about patience because I don't even know whether I want to be patient Because patience oftentimes looks kind of wimpy, if you know what I mean. It looks sort of like you're not fully devoted to the mission. You know, you're not engaged in it. You're not trying hard. But patience, at least patience in the Bible, doesn't mean to be passive. It doesn't mean to lack urgency. That's not what patience is about. Patience is not about, in the Bible, failing to hold people accountable. That's not Bible patience. It's not about tolerating something that needs to be done. That's not Bible patience. Patience is the ability to gladly dwell in the moment when we would actually prefer not to be in that moment. But we gladly dwell there because that's the way of love. That's the way of love. It, it engages both the urgency of life and the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in. And that's why I think it's a good way to translate it, as oftentimes is, as long-suffering. Patience is long-suffering. In my opinion, it's maybe harder to be patient today than it was in the time of Jesus. I'm not sure about that, but I kind of feel that way. 
it seems that we live in an ever-accelerating life pace. For example, we've always had food as part of our lives. And fast food, yeah, there's been fast food, but now we've patented fast food, it, it appears to me anyway. When we look for food, we're not just looking for how good it is or how cheap we can get it. We want to know how fast we'll get it. And today, it's even too slow to go a fast food place and go inside and sit down and eat it. We have to have drive-through lanes so that families can eat in their vans like God intended. Today, we don't just have dating, we have speed dating. We have self-checkout, overnight shipping, instant messaging. And when we text, we don't even want to spell out the word, so we use, you know, abbreviations, ASAP. And sometimes, you know, that self-correcting thing takes care of it. Well, sometimes it doesn't work quite right. I don't know whether you've ever sent a text and saw what it actually said when it arrived. How about this one? Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dead husband, happy birthday to you. (laughs) Husband wrote back, thanks, I assume you meant dear. Ah. (laughs) Impatience may look like an absurdly trivial thing, but it's really important because impatience can kill my prayer life, impatience, can mess up my relationship with my kids, impatience, can make me say, well, it can make me dive shallow in life. I don't want to finish this assignment. I don't want to stick to this diet. I don't want to stay in this marriage. I don't want to honor this commitment. I don't want to change my behavior because I want what I want when I want it. But love, love is patient. Love is long-suffering. If God wants us to grow in patience, how long do you think he'll give us? A long time? If God wants me to grow in patience, how do you think he'll do it? Don't you think he'll probably give me something to be patient about? (laughs) And I call those irritants. (laughs) I don't know what you call them, but I call it irritants. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, I and I told the children's story, and I and I had some shells, and I had some fake pearls, and I told the children about oysters and how they make pearls. You know, when oysters make pearls, they only need two things: an irritant and time. An irritant and time. An oyster has only one way to cope with that irritant, and that is to give a little bit of himself every day. He does. The oyster gives a tiny bit of himself and covers that irritant and does it again and again and again, hundreds of times, thousands of times, until the irritant is completely engulfed with hundreds of these layers that make it iridescent and gleaming. But it takes a long time sometimes 20 years, to make a really beautiful pearl. To to produce patience in you and me needs two things, an irritant 
and time. No, actually, it takes three. Inheritance, time, and God's goodness. That's what it takes. And God will give you time. And God will give you an irritant. By the way, if you don't have an irritant, call the church. We have a list. How patient is God? How patient is God in dealing with me? How does he relate to my issues? Look what Peter says. He's patient with you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God has a long leash. I'm so grateful for that. He has a long leash because he wants life transformation, not robotic conformity. He works long and hard with us, giving all of us grace and mercy and understanding. That's how he wants us to relate to others. On the other side of patience, if you call it a coin, flip the coin, is kindness. And that's the second attribute that Paul talks about. Patience is the passive side of love. Kindness is the active part. Love doesn't give back as it gets. Love gives back kindness instead. One of my favorite examples of kindness in the Bible is David. David had to be so patient. Think of his life, you know. He was anointed king as an early, early on in life and he had to wait for years to actually be placed in that position and during that time he was chased and, and challenged over and over again by King Saul who wanted to kill him. Many years later, finally, when, when King Saul and his son Jonathan, David's friend, had both died, David... Uh, who learned patience from his irritant, Saul, asked the question, is there anybody in Saul's family that's still alive? And it's told him, yes, there's one, Mephibosheth. He's young, he's lame, he's frightened, but David takes him in. He befriends him, he honors him, he, he protects him, he feeds him, and even though Mephibosheth really is, is David's rival, to the throne, he's invited to the kingdom, to an honored place. Love is kind. That's the way love is. The question loving people ask is, is there anyone I can show kindness to? And that's a question I want to have you carry with you this week. Is there anyone I can show kindness to? Who can I show? Would you think of that this week? Who can I show kindness to? Last week it was another question. God, would you make me your li- uh, like yourself, more loving person? So those two questions. Last week, can you, would you make me loving like you, God? This week, who can I show kindness to? Is there anyone I can show kindness to? You could do that. It doesn't take an ed- a degree. It doesn't take a resume. It doesn't take money. What if, what if, What if we never let a person come here to Village Church one time, three times, ten times, a hundred times, 
all their lives without giving them the gift of kindness. What if that? What if that? What if visitors would go away from this church and say, that was one of the kindest places I've ever been? Wouldn't that be something? Those people are just so kind. And then what if it overflowed from this place to everywhere in our lives? We're just kind people. Everywhere with everyone. And to be kind people... It seems to me that I've got to slow down a little bit. I don't know about you, but I'm too hurried to be kind all the time, to be patient enough, to notice things. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not. But Jesus, you know, he noticed. For example, he walked into a town and he noticed a man up in a tree. Jesus walked out of a town and he noticed a man born blind that other people didn't even recognize. Jesus noticed a woman who touched the hem of his garment that no one else even noticed. Jesus invited children to be with him and the disciples thought that he would never have time for them. Except he did. Because Jesus notices. Jesus is kind. He's patient. So, What if we asked God to help us notice? To not just walk by, but to notice. Really notice. To give an act of kindness. There's a carpeted spot in our house that I'm trying hard to protect from getting soiled. So I put a carpet on top of a carpet. Have you ever done that? It doesn't work very well. Take my word for it. It doesn't work. It, every time you step on it, it steps away from the spot I want it to be. But that problem, that irritant, is not nearly as much of a problem as another problem that I have. And that's my impatience. My unkindness. I was on the floor earlier this week, right beside that spot that's got the carpet that's moving away all the time, and I was doing something that I loathe, exercise. Never interrupt me when I exercise. How can I count and talk at the same time? I can't do that. But as Wafiel walked by, she asked me about the carpet, and my response was a bigger problem than the carpet. I didn't do well in that conversation. I was gruff, I was impatient, I was unkind, I was demeaning, and about 20 other words that I could say, don't ask me why I'm that way, except, well, I've got some rough edges, and God's helping me with those. It wasn't my best moment, for sure, and I'm amazed that my wife doesn't take me to the husband's store and exchange me for a different brand. (laughs) Except I'm not amazed because she loves me. And love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. And when I surrender myself to God and allow God to use me in the way he wants to use me, 
And when I receive from him the gift he's given me, gifts he's given me, and give those gifts to others, I'm living in the unseen reality of God's kingdom. As an action, as an action, love is kind. It doesn't reject. It doesn't withdraw. It doesn't ignore. And that's the other side of patience, you see. Instead, kindness does whatever it can to bless the other person regardless of who or she is or does. Jesus was clear. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse. He said that. This week, our country mourned the passing of a great statesman, a compassionate human being, Elijah Cummings. The longtime Baltimore congressman passed away just this last week. And he became the first African-American lawmaker to lie in state in the Capitol, the first. And at his four-hour funeral in the new Psalmist Baptist Church in Baltimore, with 4,000 people attending, the former president, Barack Obama, had the eulogy. And in his remarks, he said something about Elijah Cummings. He was known as a kind man. This is what he said. Being a strong man includes being kind. That, that there's nothing weak about kindness and compassion. There's nothing weak about looking out for others. There's nothing weak about being honorable. There's nothing weak about kindness. Nothing weak about patience. And then Paul goes from these two positive words to the next eight negative, and we won't take much time there because we're out of time, but the next thing he says is that love does not envy. You know, when you think of it, love, envy is, is about the opposite of love. A person who loves feels built up when others are doing well. That's a person who loves. They feel built up when, when other people are doing good, but a person who envies feels diminished be, when others aren't doing, are doing well. It's a strange thing. But when I love someone, I want constantly to build them up. But when I envy them, I compare myself to them. I want what they have, and I want to outdo them, and I want them to lose. That's envy. We can't get rid of envy by working hard at getting rid of envy. It can only be gotten rid of by agape love, God's love. I look at it kind of like my yard. The best way to keep the dandelions out of my yard is to have a nice, healthy lawn. It's the same way in my life. When God's love is present in my life, there's not room for envy to grow. That's the way it works. For your amazement, I'll just give you a little list of, I mean, I have a problem with envy. I'll just admit it to you. And here's some of the people... Not the entire group, but here's some that I, that I envy. I, and I envy people who are smarter than me. I envy people who are more musical than me. I envy people who are wiser than me, better leaders than me, better writers than me, people who have perfect children. I envy people who are really relational savvy, relationally savvy. I, I envy people who are movers and shakers. I envy theologians. I envy people who can actually remember the Greek that they had in college. 
And if you're here today and you don't have a problem with envy, I envy you. (laughs) I envy because I'm puffed up inside. And Paul uses words like boast and proud and things like that. I envy. And, and you know, because I'm a pastor and I'm not supposed to do this, I, I disguise it. And I really don't want to do it, but it's just a natural part of me. But it, I hide it in clever ways. But envy doesn't allow space for others to use their talents and time in a way that glorifies God. It, it feels diminished inside because of it. It feels threatened when other people are accomplishing things and it feels lust for the same accomplishments and good fortune. Envy doesn't want, envy doesn't want me just to have more. It wants you to have less. In some ways, envy is really a contemporary problem today more than it's ever been before. I heard a research that documented that the impact of social media today is, is having a great effect on envy. You can imagine why. We have more access to the successes of more people than ever before in history. That's what they always post, isn't it? The successes, the things they're doing good when they look good. And when I look at it, I think, boy, they have a better job than me. They have better ideas than me. They have better vacations than me. They have better kids than me. They have better hair than me, you know, they have better everything than me. The more time they say that people spend on social media, the more envious they become. At the same time, envy is so old, so central, so subtle, that the first time sin is used in the Bible, it's associated with envy. And you know the story. Cain and Abel, they were brothers God made love for families. But Cain didn't love his brother. He envied his brother. Abel knew a spiritual intimacy with God that Cain didn't know. Now, Cain could have worked on that. I mean, that wasn't something that Abel had alone. He could have prayed. He could have asked for forgiveness. He could have done anything. But instead, he dealt with the pain. Instead of looking at his own heart, he... He thought of getting rid of his brother. He thought thought his brother was the problem instead of himself. God tries to help him. And you know the conversation. God says to him, why are you angry? And the Lord asks Cain, why do you look so dejected? God tries to reason with him. God tries to help him. He's asking, why, why, why so downcast? But notice, Cain doesn't answer God. If Cain would have, if Cain would have confessed to himself and to God if Cain would have. He could have been saved. He could have. But the silence of Cain is his doom. Envy destroyed his brother and it destroyed Cain. And then in that unspeakable, unspeakably painful passage, after the murder, God says, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. The ground wasn't made to receive that but has been receiving it ever since. And we can follow this green thread of envy throughout the Bible. It was from beginning to end. Sarah envies Hagar. Isaac envies Ishmael. 
Miriam and Aaron are jealous of their brother Moses. On and on it goes through the Bible. Paul says in Philippians 1.15 that some people preach from envy. Imagine it. And one day, Jesus, a man who started a community that was to be vacant of envy and to live the opposite way of love, evidently his followers hadn't gotten the memo and they came to him, two of them, James and John, and they said, when, we, when you sit down on your glorious kingdom, we want to be on your right and on your left. Mark records it that way. In Matthew it says that James and John's mom came and asked Jesus. And the other ten disciples are aghast and upset. Not because of what they said to Jesus, but because they didn't think of it first. Then Jesus says, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over the people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Who wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of everyone else. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. No, we can't stop envy by trying really hard to stop envy. Spiritual growth is not envy management. Spiritual maturity does not happen by gritting our teeth. But but envy can be removed by agape love, God's love. When God's love is present in my life, there's no room for envy to take root. So, instead of looking at people as your life rivals this week, okay, instead of looking at them that way, why don't you say, This is someone that God loves. How can I help them? What kindness can I do? Would you ask the question this week? To whom can I show kindness? To whom can I show kindness? Agape love, God's love, builds. It fosters the abilities and successes of others. And it looks at the good that comes to others as a community growing. Paul, in this passage, gives us a series of commands, a series of verbs, and he's describing what love is. And as we finish, I'd like to just read it with you again. And would you join me as we read these words together? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily anchored. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always protects. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. This week, this week, Let's have that agape love, huh? Be patient and kind. Be looking forward to how God is going to do his work in our life and in other people's life. And I'd like to finish by 
reading the last couple sentences of the book, The Great Controversy, that says that really everything is about love. The great, great controversy has ended, Ellen White says. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that, say it with me, God is love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the demonstration of love in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him we see perfection. We see the example that you would have us follow in being people of love. So this week, Lord, we're asking for strength. We can't do this ourselves. We need your strength to live that love that you so beautifully demonstrated in Christ and which you so um, powerfully give us the strength to, to do in our own lives, that we can be patient, that we can be kind and understanding and loving. And So to that end, Lord, we want to live as we walk in your footsteps. And may this place, this church, and our lives, our homes, be place, places where love reigns because you reign is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.